every hour. People, people make, every time I've been in Richard, like people always make that joke. Like, when I'm in the jokes or Richard, like, they're going to get, like, one, like, an hour, I swear. Like, and all the time, like, I walk, I go by those straight tracks all the time. I don't care anything. All right, guys, we're looking at the Gospel of Luke. And we are, what's your first name? Tara. Tara. Tara, we are on, we're about six, seven pages in. Okay. And we're still on day one. And last week, we're, we're not actually into the gospel yet. We got to say a few words before we started. And last week, we went over the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes, the Zealots. These are the four major types of Jewish people. They're all Jews, but they had very different ideas. And then we talked a little bit about the Romans and their religion and their attitude toward other religions. Now we turn the page and we are on the spread of the Jewish religion. Jewish neighborhoods appeared in every town of the Roman Empire. Yeah, Jews were very ancient. Jews go back. How far do they go back? They go back to Abraham. And he's about 1850 B.C. Not quite 2,000 years before Christ. God starts to create his chosen people through Abraham. And over that period of time, they spread from the Middle East all over the Roman Empire. So in major Roman cities, there would be a Jewish neighborhood there. And there would be a synagogue where they would worship. And so Jewish people were well known. They were a tiny portion, okay? They were a tiny portion of the population, but they were still well known. They were spread out all over. The Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek, the common language of the Eastern Empire. In the Roman Empire, you had... The Eastern Roman Empire, think of the country of Turkey, you think of Asia Minor, uh, you think of uh, the, the Middle Eastern countries. Um, well, hi, Claudia. <laughs> grab, grab your notes, there's another set there. And um, the uh, Western Roman Empire, think of Europe. Italy, Spain, France, okay? You think of Western... You think of Western Europe, and even Eastern Europe was part of the Western Empire. And then the Eastern Roman Empire was Turkey and the Middle East. Okay? Ivan, what empire ruled the world before the Roman Empire? I have no idea. No idea? Anybody? Greek. The Greek Empire. That's right. <laughs> Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire. He conquered the whole Middle East in about three, he conquered Judea in 333 BC. So about 300 years before Christ, the Greek Empire conquered the whole Mediterranean area. Okay? And of course, they spoke Greek. And so Greek became the language even of the Hebrews. Okay? The Jewish people, at first, they were called the Hebrews because they spoke Hebrew. 
Later, they were called Israelites because they left Egypt and they came into the land of Israel and divided up into 12 tribes of Israel. They're known as Israelites. All right? And then the 10 northern tribes got wiped out by the Babylonians, and, and then you've only got the two smaller tribes, Judea and Benjamin, and Benjamin is really small. And so it's basically Judea. And then they become known as Jews, because they live in Judea. You get that? Jew, Judea. So, Hebrews, Israelites, Jews. Same bunch of people, different periods, different centuries in their existence. But their scriptures were written in Hebrew. But about 200 years before Jesus, when the Greeks had conquered this whole area and everything became Greek, Greek architecture, Greek politics, Greek gods, Greek language, Greek culture. It's known as Hellenism. You ever hear that word? Hellenistic? Okay? Everything was Greek. And so, some scholars in Alexandria, Egypt, seven, traditionally 70 scholars, they took the books of the Old Testament and they translated them into Greek. And that becomes known as the Septuagint. Probably driving you crazy here. But that's called the Septuagint, which means the 70, because 70 guys did it. Okay? And when Jesus comes into this world and Jesus goes into a synagogue and he opens a scroll and he reads from the prophet Isaiah, what language is he reading? Hebrew? No. He's reading a translation. He's reading Greek. Okay? Isaiah wrote that in Hebrew to begin with. But by the time Jesus comes along, Greek has taken over that part of the world. And that is the Old Testament that we still have to this day, is the Septuagint, okay? With 46 books in the, in, in the Septuagint. That is the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus used. That's the Old Testament that the apostles used. And it's the Old Testament that the Catholic Church has always used for 2,000 years. But about 500 years ago... Uh, Martin Luther and the Protestant revolt against the Catholic Church, they started using a different set of books for the Old Testament. Only 39 books. In a Protestant Old Testament, there's only 39 books or seven books missing. Okay? We're using the same list of books that Jesus used. I always figured, if it was good enough for Jesus, it ought to be good enough for me. Um... But Martin Luther didn't see it that way. Anyway, um, so the, the common language of the Roman Empire at the time of Jesus was Greek. As time went by, eventually it's going to become the language of the Roman Empire will eventually become Latin, okay? Latin becomes the language of the Roman Empire after centuries. When the empire starts in the Middle East, it's Greek, okay? And even at the time of Jesus, when he was crucified, they put a sign above his head, 
Anybody remember? It says it was written in three languages. Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. Those would have been the three that most people would have... And yet, probably the most common language that was spoken, the language that Jesus probably spoke every day when he's talking to, you know, when Mary said, Jesus, go get a bucket of water from the well, and he said, okay, Mom, what would he be speaking? Most likely, Aramaic. He would have been speaking Aramaic. That was the most common spoken language by Jewish people in uh, the Middle East. And uh, in the synagogue, they would read the scriptures every Sabbath day. Of course, at Mass, I went to Mass this morning just like you, and what did we do? We read the scriptures. That's our, our Catholic religion is straight out of the Jewish roots. Jesus is a Jew. Mary's a Jew. Joseph's a Jew. The twelve apostles are Jews. Those 3,000 people who were baptized on Pentecost, which we heard about today, every one of them was a Jew, okay? It wasn't until a couple years later that Peter received a revelation that Gentiles could be baptized also. It was a Jewish thing, Jewish phenomenon. Jesus was seen as the Jewish Messiah. And our Catholic Church, it grows right out of the Jewish roots, and so many of the things we do as Catholics come from the ancient Jewish religion. Judea and Galilee. Judea, the southern part of Palestine, was settled by the exiles returning from Babylon. Well, you probably don't know about that. That's Old Testament. That's from another day. Uh, some Jewish settlers also moved into Galilee in the north. Now, Jesus was from Galilee. If we had a map here... And we had Israel or Palestine. You know, even today they call it Palestine, don't they? Uh, is, we got the nation of Israel and we got the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO. You ever hear of these guys, these terrorists? Okay, that's because the place before 1948 was called Palestine. It was under the protection of the British Empire. And it was known as Palestine. Where did that word come from? It comes from 2,000 years ago. There was an ancient tribe that lived along the seacoast called the Philistines. You heard of Goliath? Mm -hmm. David kills Goliath. Goliath was a Philistine. And that's where the name Palestine comes from. Okay? So, if we were looking at a map of, of Palestine, or which was later called the Promised Land of Israel, Okay. They divided it up into 12 tribes, but at the time of Jesus, you've got the southern part of it is Judea. The northern part of it is Galilee, and the middle part is known as Samaria. Okay, Samaritans live there? Samaria. Yes, Jesus, he lives up here in Nazareth in Galilee, which was mostly pagans. Okay, there were Jewish people up there, but it was mostly pagan. Then you got Samaritans who are half-breeds. When the, when the ten northern tribes were conquered by the Assyrians, the Assyrians moved in and they, they killed people and they took people away as slaves, but they left some of the poor people there. Eventually they intermarried. That's what people do. Um... When our soldiers were in Vietnam, 
Sometimes they had sex with the native women. What were, what were those children? Have you ever heard of that? What were those kids called? In Vietnam, they were called Amerasians. They were American and they were Asians. They were Amerasians, half American, half Vietnamese. They were hated by the Vietnamese. Hated. They didn't let them go to school. They, didn't let, they wouldn't hire them for a job. These people have suffered horribly for these many years because they are half American and America was the enemy. The Samaritans were half Assyrian and half Jewish. And they were hated by the full-blooded Jews. And they had Jews to the north of them, and they had Jews to the south of them. And Samaria was in the middle. And, and we'll see in the gospel that Jesus talks to a Samaritan woman. And they're surprised. They're like, whoa, you're talking to one of these half-breeds? You're talking to one of them? I mean, most Jews... Uh, guarantee a, a Pharisee would never have spoken to her. So anyway, um, the whole area of Palestine was under the rule of the Roman Empire. But the Romans in about 62 AD, uh, excuse me, 62 BC, they put a guy named Herod uh, in charge and eventually Herod had a number of sons and he called all of his boys Herod. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever heard of the boxer George Foreman. He had like seven kids and he named them all George. Uh, even the girls. Uh, yeah, he named, he named all of his kids George. And um, Herod was the same way. He named all of his kids Herod. There's Herod Philip, Herod uh, Archelaus, Herod uh, Antipas, um, I forget, Herod Agrippa. He, he had a bunch of kids. He named them all Herod. And when the first Herod, Herod the Great, he's called Herod the Great because he built a lot of buildings in Jerusalem. So he becomes known as Herod the Great. His kids, they divide Palestine into four Parts, and each one of the kids becomes king over his part. Okay? And that's the situation we're in when Jesus comes to the world. Okay? In the New Testament, when you read about Herod, you've got to be very careful who you're reading about here. It could be one of five different Herods. So you've got to kind of know what's going on. And then finally, I got the Samaritans there. Uh, Jews refused to have any dealings with the Samaritans, as I just told you, and you know why now, because they're half Assyrian. Today, we would call Assyria, Syria. We don't call it Assyria anymore, it's just Syria. And it's still a country, and it's still right north of Israel. And, um, and they're still enemies to this day. Jesus shocked his contemporaries by speaking to Samaritans. Yeah, she was a Samaritan and she was a woman. And Jesus spoke to her and that was a rather shocking thing for them. Okay, we're up to day two now. The new law, the four gospels. All four gospels tell the same story. Yet each gospel tells it from a different point of view. If you were to take a trip 
to New York City. And one of you went there on an airplane, and another one went there on a train, and another one went there in a car, and another one got on a boat in D.C. and you took a ship into the harbor. You'd get four different views of New York City, wouldn't you? One from the sea, one from the rail, one from a car, one from an airplane. And some of them would be very different views, wouldn't it? A car and a plane is a very different view of the city. And yet it's the exact same city. And you're seeing it from four very different points of view. Well, that's what we got with the four Gospels. It's the same Jesus. It's the same story. This is what they witnessed, but each person witnessed it in a different way. Okay? So, when we look at the four Gospels, we get four different points of view of the same thing, which is great. Four different witnesses. The first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I hope you knew that, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The first three are called synoptic. That is a Greek word that means seen together or seeing together. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar. They are. They're pretty similar. Probably about 80% of Matthew, Mark, and Luke are copied from each other. Like word for word. Verses that are word for word. If you guys uh, get an assignment from a professor and... Your papers are word for word on the essay. Uh, what's the uh, professor going to say? Yeah, you, you, right. You either copied off of each other or you plagiarized a source. And that's the same thing here. We're not exactly sure. You can read books and you can have theologians and they argue who wrote first. A lot of them think Mark wrote first. A lot of them think there was another one. They call it the Q source. I'm not so sure about that. But they think there was another source out there that... But the fact of the matter is, somebody wrote first, somebody wrote second, somebody wrote third. And it sure looks like the people who wrote second or third had the first one in front of them and they copied some of it. They didn't copy all of it, but they copied some of it. Um, so we're not sure exactly who copied who. But the first three Gospels have a lot in common. They're called the Synoptic Gospels. Okay, let's look at the authors. Matthew. Was he one of the twelve apostles? Mm, come on, guys. You're college kids here. Let's jump right in. I, I, yes. He was. Matthew was one of the twelve apostles. He's also got another name. What was his other name? Starts with an L. Levi. Levi. He's also known as Levi. Exactly why he's called Levi and Matthew, I do not know. Maybe I should look that up someday. But he's also known as Levi. And he was, his occupation You guys really do need a Bible study, I'm telling you. You really do need this. Wow! No, he wasn't a fisherman. He was a tax collector. Matthew was a tax collector. 
Jesus meets him in the gospel. Jesus meets him at his tax collecting booth. It's like a toll booth along the road. And it's a very simple scene. Jesus walks up and says, follow me. And it says, he shut down the tax collector's booth. He got out and he followed him down the road. That's it. I mean, his life changed instantly. Now, maybe there's more to the story than that, but that's what it says. Uh, so Matthew was a tax collector. If somebody's a tax collector, if somebody works with money, if you're a bookkeeper, you're an accountant, you're probably pretty careful with your numbers, right? Matthew's gospel is pretty careful, pretty detailed. He, he's, he knows what he's doing here when he's writing. Matthew's gospel is very well laid out. If you were to study the structure of it, you'd see, oh man, this guy, yeah, he does. You know, accountants, they put everything in a certain place, you know, and that's what Matthew did. And he's one of the 12 apostles. He's there. He, he experiences uh, the whole public ministry of Jesus. Um, he is very Jewish in his writing. Matthew is very, he's a Jew. They're all Jews. Uh, well, with a caveat here in a moment. Um, he's very Jewish in his writing. And Matthew emphasized Jesus as the true heir of David's kingdom. He is the son of David. If we go back to the Old Testament, again, you probably don't know, but God makes covenants with, with Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David. And what does God say to David? One of your sons will always sit on your throne. One of your sons will always be king. Of course, that's fulfilled in Jesus, who is the king of heaven. And he sits on his throne for all eternity. Right now, he's on his throne. Matthew focuses very much on Jesus as this Jewish fulfillment of the prophecies, as the son of David. Mark. And Matthew's writing for Jewish readers. Mark is writing for Roman Christians as his main audience, for people who are maybe not quite as Jewish. And who is Mark? Was he one of the 12 apostles? No, he was not. Mark was probably, oh, we don't know, maybe 11, 12 years old when Jesus ate the Last Supper at his house. Yeah. In the, in the, in the New Testament, he's called John Mark. He's known as John Mark. We call him Mark. He was a helper on a missionary journey with St. Paul. They got mad at each other, and they didn't go on the next journey together. And then Mark started helping Peter. And he became like a secretary for Peter. Peter was an uneducated fisherman. The, the Gospels tell us that, you know, the, the Sanhedrin was very shocked. Where did you uneducated men get this from? Well, by uneducated, it means they couldn't read or write. Peter was a fisherman who never learned how to read or write. And so, how do we get letters from St. Peter? Mark's writing them for him. How do we get Mark's gospel? Peter is telling Mark, this is what happened. 
and Mark is writing it down. So when you read Mark's gospel, you are reading St. Peter's gospel. It's called Mark's gospel, but he's writing that for Peter. And this is just off to the side, but it's so much fun. Um, in Mark's gospel, there is a little detail that's not in any of the other three. At the Last Supper, they leave and they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there Jesus is arrested by the mob, right? And in Mark's gospel, in the middle of this, it says there was a young boy there in the garden dressed in nothing but a sheet. He was grabbed by one of the guards, but he ran off into the night naked. What's this got to do with anything? It's like two sentences that have nothing to do. We got this little streaker out here. We got this little boy who, who loses his sheet. And, 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 you know, that's Mark. Mark is writing about himself. That's what most all the people who've studied it think. He just, that's me. I was there. I was just a kid. I guess what they say is, at that time of the year, in that part of the world, at that time, a kid might just wrap up in a, just a linen sheet, to, you know, just some sort of cover, and Jesus and the apostles ate at his house, and we think the Garden of Gethsemane was owned by his parents also, and they, and they had permission to go there, and so this kid is thinking like, what is going on? Where's everybody going? So he had already laid down for the night to go to sleep because they probably didn't leave the Last Supper till like 11 p.m. or something like that. And so he doesn't dress up. He just grabs his sheet, you know. And off he goes, and then all hell breaks loose, and this guy's grabbing me, and I'm taking off. <laughs> this guy gets a handful of sheep, you know. I won't mention any names, but years ago when my kids were teenagers, sometimes... Young people around here would go out drinking at various places, and there's an old cemetery out by Rangeline Road, and there was a bunch of teenagers out there doing some underage drinking, and somebody called the police, and the police came, and they grabbed this one high school boy from Rushi, uh, the cop did, and the cop ended up with a t-shirt in his hand. The kid ran right out of the t-shirt. He just ripped the t-shirt off, and, and he got away. <laughs> Let's drink at the cemetery. This is uh, the Rushi version of the Gospel of Mark, you know. Yeah. So anyway, Mark is is uh, he's basically giving you Peter's version, and um, our next one, Luke, and we're going to go through the entire Gospel of Luke. But when we do. When we go through every line of the Gospel of Luke, and by the way, this is going to take a while, guys. Uh, we may not get done this summer. We get done whatever we get done. You know, a Bible study is a great thing, and I hope that every single time you come, you learn some stuff. And so if we get a third of the way through, if we get halfway through, three-fourths, whatever, whatever we get done. Um... Someday we'll pick up the rest of it and we'll, we'll get, you know, when you come home from college next year, we can start it again next summer. Whatever. We'll do as much as we can. And um, 
Now Luke, was he one of the twelve apostles? No, he was not. He was a traveling companion with St. Paul. He, uh, he wasn't even a Jew. Luke is the only Gentile. He's the only non-Jewish author. In the 27 books of the New Testament, it's the only one written by someone who wasn't a Jew. But he was a convert to Judaism. Okay, But uh, he himself was a Gentile. And he kind of highlights Gentiles throughout his gospel. We'll see a lot of interaction of Jesus with Gentiles. And, and Luke would naturally take note of that because he was a Gentile. And so um, he, um, he, he takes note of that. In Luke's gospel, we have an infancy narrative. We have a story about Jesus being born about the angels appearing and the shepherds coming and the, the magi. This is in Luke's gospel, and it's also in Matthew's gospel. Mark starts with Jesus 30 years old, and John starts with Jesus 30 years old. Those two gospels don't mention anything about Jesus before his public ministry. But Matthew and Luke, they talk about the events surrounding the birth of Jesus, the events before the birth of Jesus, like John the Baptist coming to prepare the way, okay? Those things are in Luke and Matthew. Where did Luke get his info from? He tells us very clearly that he got his information from eyewitnesses. He says, I have carefully interviewed, he had gotten information from the eyewitnesses. Well, who would the eyewitness have to be when he's talking about uh, the angel Gabriel coming to the Virgin Mary and saying, you're going to be the mother of the Savior? You would have had to get that from Mary. She's the only one there. And so I would think that a lot of the information in the early part of the gospel about the birth of Jesus and his circumcision, these things had to come from Mary. Because sometimes we even get personal details where it says, Mary pondered all these things in her heart. Well, how would Luke know that? Because Mary told him, you know, I used to think about this all the time. <laughs> you know, I bet she did. You know, when, when she lost track of Jesus for three days and they found him in the temple, you know, I bet she was thinking, oh my goodness, you know, I lost God's kid, you know, <laughs> bad enough to lose your own kid, you know, and <laughs> pulling her hair out, you know, like, whoa, this is not good. I bet she thought about so many things. And finally, John's gospel. Now, most every scholar is convinced that John's gospel is the last one written. That's what most everybody thinks. Again, we're not for certain on this, but that's what most people think. And John probably wrote um, some years after the other three were written. And we find in John's gospel, and I've actually added it to this course if you look at that syllabus at the very beginning, 
um, at the very beginning, after you get done with uh, lesson number 58, that's where Luke finishes. And then I actually have uh, six different lessons from John's Gospel. I pick out six different uh, places in John's Gospel where he has stories that are not in the other three. There's some shocking things left out of the other three. Anybody know what Jesus' first public miracle was? Wedding at Cana, right? Huh? Wedding at Cana, right? Where he did what? He turned the water into wine. He changed water into wine. His first public miracle. Pretty dandy miracle. You know, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm talking, that's sweet. It's not in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. None of them mention it. It's only in John. The woman caught in adultery that they were going to stone, you know. That's only in John's Gospel. That's not in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Yeah. There's really amazing things that are left out of one or another Gospel. There's only like a half a dozen things that are in all four. So, it's... it's when we get done with Luke, we'll take a little detour and look at some of the highlights of John that are not in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, and then we will have covered the life of Jesus pretty well. John. Wow. Have you ever seen symbols for the four Gospels? Like in Layman, we have a window. And in each fourth of this circular window, they have a symbol. One is an ox, another is a man, another is an eagle, and oh, I forget the fourth one. But they stand for the four Gospels. Which one symbolizes John? The eagle. His theology soars above the others. John's theology is more developed. Look at the first line of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John starts his gospel by screaming at us, Jesus is God, did you know that? But he doesn't say it that way. He says he's the Word. He is the eternal word spoken by the Father to the world. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And later he says the word became flesh. You know, that's a theological way of speaking. You and I would probably say, yeah, Jesus was in heaven and then he got born on earth. You know, but that's not how John does it. You know, the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. And we saw his glory as the glory of the only begotten son filled with. Ah! You know, John is much more theological than the others. John's gospel fills in details left out by the other three gospels. Most people think that he had the other three gospels there and he's thinking, Man, 
man, you guys left out his first public miracle, and you left out the whole woman caught in adultery thing, and you left out this, and, and that whole beautiful discourse at the Last Supper that's, you know, John 15, 16, 17, 18. Those chapters where Jesus talks just so beautifully about his relationship with the Father and his relationship with us at the Last Supper. Most of that is left out of the other Gospels. But John puts it all in there. The relationship of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is, we see it most beautifully represented in the Gospel of John. All right. Um, in my class, uh, in this course, I, I talk more about these others, but we're not going to do that here. Uh, Luke does write a sequel, The Acts of the Apostles, which is a great book. Tons of fun. You get a lot of early church action there. The first third is like the Acts of St. Peter, and the last two-thirds is like the Acts of St. Paul. And the book is called The Acts of the Apostles. It's great early church history. You should read it, but um, we are not studying that now, and so we are going to move on. And we can actually go to the first uh, chapter of Luke, the first half of the first chapter, verses 1 through 38. And um, it's a Bible study. I don't know if you brought your Bible. I didn't even know if we'd get to it today. Yeah, if you want to, that's great. You don't have to. I've got mine here. And... Um, We'll read those first 38 verses, and then we'll talk about it. So here we go. We are the Gospel of Luke. Since many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the events that have been fulfilled among us, and before I go any further, narrative... A narrative is telling a story, okay? It's, it's not a parable. It's not a legend. It's, I'm telling you what happened. I was at the ball game last Friday night, and our guy, you know, missed a dunk. That would have been great, okay? I'm telling you a narrative, okay? That's narrative. So these are things that actually happen. Since many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as those who were eyewitnesses from the beginning and ministers of the word have handed them down to us, I too have decided, after investigating everything accurately anew, to write it down in an orderly sequence for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may realize the certainty of the teachings you have received. So Luke is saying, look, I've written this all down, I've investigated it very carefully, and I've written it all down, so that you can know if you've heard something about Jesus, well, you can check. If it's not here, you may not have the right thing. And there were plenty of false gospels at the time. Uh, known as Gnostic Gospels. Verse 5. In the days of Herod, 
king of Judea. Okay, I already warned you on this. There's five different Herods. Which one do you think this one is? Herod the Great. This is Herod the Great. This is the first guy. This is not one of those four kids. They In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the priestly division of Abijah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both were righteous in the eyes of God, observing all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blamelessly. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Once, when he was serving as priest in his division, in his division's turn before God, according to the practice of the priestly service, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord to burn incense. Then, when the whole assembly of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense offering, the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right of the altar of incense. Zechariah was troubled by what he saw, and fear came upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall name him John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers toward children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to prepare a people fit for the Lord. Then Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel, who stand before God. I was sent to speak to you and to announce to you this good news. But now you will be speechless and unable to talk until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled at their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and were amazed that he stayed so long in the sanctuary. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He was gesturing to them, but remained mute. Then, when his days of ministry were completed, he went home. And after this, time, uh, after this time, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she went into seclusion for five months, saying, So has the Lord done for me at a time when he has seen fit to take away my disgrace before others. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, was sent from God to a town of Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming to her, he said, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled of what was said and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. 
Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of David his father, and he will rule over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. But Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I have no relations with a man? And the angel said to her in reply, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible for God. Mary said, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. All right, that is our uh, section that we will start to review. And uh, it's going to take us a while, I'm sure. Um, I've got to set this over here. Zachariah and Elizabeth were righteous people, but they had no children. They were both very old. Yeah, it says that uh, she was past the childbearing age. She had gone through menopause. She had never had any kids. And it says that this was disgraceful, that God had removed her disgrace. Yeah. In the, in the Jewish religion, there is a, a theme, and we see it over and over and over. If we had studied the Old Testament, you would have seen this theme. The barren woman, the woman who cannot have a baby. Through God's help, she conceives a baby, a boy, and he becomes really important. This happens over and over and over and over. You've got the mother of Samson. You've got the mother of Samuel. You, you have so many times in the Old Testament that same thing. And now you have Elizabeth. She's, well, what, what's the, the biggest one in the Old Testament? I mean, the, the one that takes the crown jewel. Really old lady. Sarah, she's 90 years old. She's the wife of Abraham. And she's 90 years old when she gives birth to Isaac. Okay? Yeah. God speaks to Abraham when he's 75 years old, and she's 65 years old. She's been barren her whole life. She's already 65. And says, you're going to have a son. Well, it doesn't happen and after so many years, Abraham thinks, well, I'll have sex with the slave girl, Hagar. She gets pregnant. She gives birth to Ishmael. And, you know, that's Sarah's slave girl. So it's going to like, oh, I'm going to have a baby through a surrogate mother. No, no, no. People try this crap today, too, only they do it more technologically. Surrogate motherhood is out of bounds. That's not the way God intended it. And Ishmael is not the child of the promise. God says, no, no. You're going to have a child with your wife. Okay? But that doesn't happen for another... It, 
between the time that God makes the promise and the time it happens is 25 years. Yeah. Sometimes we have to wait. Sometimes we have to wait, my friends. We live in a stupid instant society. Instant coffee, instant TV, instant everything. I mean, if your phone doesn't, you know, go fast enough, it's like, oh, i got to get a new one. <laughs> you know, we want everything instantly. But with God, it's not that way. With God, you sometimes have to wait days, weeks, months, years, decades. Sometimes you have to wait till you die and get to heaven. Yeah. Some things never come to pass in this life. So anyway, Sarah is the ultimate barren woman. And she gives birth to Isaac. And of course, uh, we have the beginning of the Jewish religion. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so forth. And, and so Elizabeth and Zechariah, we see that same theme. She's going to become pregnant and give birth to John, John the Baptist, right? The great, great, great prophet who prepares the way for the Lord. And then, and we had it in this particular lesson here, the ultimate barren woman is Mary. Mary. She's a virgin. She's never had sexual relations. That's about as sterile as you can get. Okay? And yet she is going to give birth to a son who's going to change the world. Yeah. This theme is over and over and over and over in the Jewish people. And Mary is the fulfillment of it all. As Zechariah offered incense in the temple, the angel Gabriel appeared to him and announced that his wife Elizabeth would bear a son whom he should name John. All right, angels. How many angels are named in the Bible? Yeah. It's like three. It's not very many. You're close. Four. Let's see if we can name them. Gabriel. Michael. From the book of Tobit, there is an angel named Raphael. And then there's a bad angel named Saint Lucifer. Lucifer, the devil. He was an angel. He, he turned bad. I didn't know that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Lucifer's an angel. Uh, a great angel. So high in the angelic strata that he didn't obey God. He thought uh, that he was equal to God. Well, he found out that ain't happening, brother. Uh, <laughs> and everybody else who thinks they're equal to God, they're going to find out someday that that's not happening. And so there are four angels that are named. How many angels are there? We don't know. There's lots. The Bible talks about myriads upon myriads. Well, what's a myriad? Myriad is like, whoa, a really big number. You know, we would say like gazillions, you know. 
when we run out of millions and trillions, and I don't even know what comes after that. I just say uh, quadrillions. Quadrillions. I just say gazillions. Uh, just a lot. I just you know a lot. And and so there's there are lots of angels, and angels have different ranks. Okay. Uh, traditionally, we rank them in nine different choirs of angels. The top is the seraphim. The burning ones in Isaiah, they stand before the throne of God. You know, you've got the next levels, the, the cherubim. And you've got dominions, thrones, principalities, powers. You, you've got archangels, and then you've got angels, you know, like privates. You know, private first class. <laughs> Angel, you know, like guardian angels. And there's, there's just different levels of angels. In heaven, there's going to be different levels of glory, too. St. Paul tells us about that. We'll get to that later. Um, but an angel comes from God. And what does it say? It says that Zechariah was frightened. Yeah! <laughs> Anything appears next to me, I'm going to be frightened. Okay? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> that's like the most common thing that angels say, and Jesus, after his resurrection, when he appears, don't be afraid. Yeah, well, of course I'm going to be afraid. There's, there's this thing here. <laughs> don't be afraid. It's me. Um, and the angel says, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been answered. Your, what prayer was that, Claudia? What prayer was answered? Yeah, he's going to, his wife's going to have a baby. How many times do you think he prayed that prayer? If you're a husband, don't you want a little kid? He probably prayed that prayer 10,000 times. And he probably hadn't prayed it for a long time, you know? Because she was past the childbearing age. Is he still praying to God for his son? Probably not. But I find it interesting. The angel says, your prayer has been answered. Probably a prayer that he prayed years and years before. Well, you're going to find that out, kids. You're going to find out in your life that God is going to do things in your life years later that you've forgotten about. Oh, yeah. you got so much ahead of you. It's so great. It is so great. Um, he said, your prayer's been answered and your wife's going to have a baby boy. And he's going to be really something. Zachariah say basically are you sure about this you know my wife she never could have any kids and she's way too old to have kids now so he's not he's, and, and, and Gabriel is, you know said you're going to be punished because you didn't believe you didn't believe what I said and that's why he's being punished by having his speech taken away but his reaction He's been praying for this 
for most of his life. And now when God does it, oh, you sure about this? Come on, buddy. Don't you believe your own prayers? When you pray for something, God hears it. And I will prove that to you later, a couple chapters down the road. But when you pray for something, God hears it. And he may say yes, he may say no, he may say wait. And when it comes by, after a while, believe it. You ask for it, believe it. It's going to happen. Zechariah didn't believe. How can this be? Well, I love Gabriel. Oh, man, he is so cool. He does not say, well, God's going to do this biologically with your wife and you're going to make her do No. He doesn't explain how it's going to happen. He doesn't explain anything. What does he do? Gabriel says, I am Gabriel! <laughs> I'm an angel, you fool! I stand in front of God! Oh, man. You really should believe whatever an angel tells you, man. I just love it! I love it. He doesn't debate with him. He doesn't argue with him. He just says, I'm an angel, man. I'm from God. All right. You didn't believe. going to have to slap you on the wrist, boy. You're not going to be able to talk. Because every time you open up your mouth, you sound stupid. So you're not going to be able to talk until everything that I've said comes to pass. It's really cool. The child, John, John the baptizer we call him, the child would live a holy life and would be a forerunner who would prepare for the, the people for the coming of the Messiah. People were very excited. Oh, man. There's so much to say. Let, let me, let me, it's 6.30. Can I get a couple more minutes yet? Yeah? Go as you'd like. Oh, well, there's no meeting tonight, so, you know, as long as you guys aren't too bummed out here. Um, were people expecting the Messiah? Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, you even have the notes that go along with this point. Go back <laughs> on your notes. Go to the third page. The third page of the notes. This is from the book of Daniel, the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament. And if you look at number 8, bullet point number 2, Daniel chapter 2, verses 31 to 45. Have you found me? Yep. The prophecy of the kingdom of God. Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, had a dream. Okay? And Daniel interpreted the dream for the king. In fact, the king said, tell me what I dreamt. And then tell me what it means. And they said, oh, king, nobody can tell you what you dreamt. I mean, tell us what it is. And we'll he said, no. He said, you'll make up some baloney 
if you're really uh, got an inside track to these things, you should be able to tell me what I dreamt. And they said, no way, I knew that. His advisor said that. And he said, well, if you can't tell me in three days, you're all going to be executed. So Daniel went off and he prayed. And God told him what the king had dreamt. He came back. He said, this is what you dreamt, king. He said, you dreamt that there was a great statue of gold. Uh, the head was made of gold. And the, 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 the chest uh, was uh, made of silver. And the belly was made of bronze. And the legs and the feet were made of iron mixed with clay. And he said, then a stone came and it crashed into this great statue and it destroyed it. And the stone then grew into a huge mountain that filled the world. And Nebuchadnezzar said, yeah, that's exactly what I dreamt, baby. And Daniel said, this is what it means. He said, you, Nebuchadnezzar, who was king of the Babylonians, he said, you are the head of gold. And the chest of silver is another kingdom that's going to replace you. And then the legs are, the thighs are another kingdom, the, the, the bronze. And then the feet of iron and clay are yet a fourth kingdom that will replace. And during that fourth kingdom will come the Messiah. The stone rejected by the builders, which has become the cornerstone, okay? There's going to become a new kingdom that's going to fill the world. That's the stone that grows into a mountain. Okay? So this was really a prophecy of the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Savior. And he would come during that fourth kingdom. Well, you got the Persian king, you got the Babylonian kingdom, which was replaced by the Persian kingdom, which was replaced by the Greek kingdom, which was replaced by the Roman kingdom. And when did Jesus come to the world? During the Roman Empire. And he set up his kingdom, the kingdom of God. When Jesus went around talking all the time, he, the, verse, the very first verse of Mark's gospel, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about this prophecy of Daniel, that the kingdom of God would come, and it would come during the Roman Empire, during the fourth world kingdom, from the prophecy of Daniel. Now, Daniel even tells us how quickly, you, you see, you got the five kingdoms. The fifth one is the kingdom of God. Look at your notes. Five empires, the Babylonian, the Persian, the Greek, the Roman, and then the kingdom of God, which is the church, of course. And you've got the dates that these things came about. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. We turn to the next page. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel gives a prophecy about the Son of Man. You've heard Jesus call himself the Son of Man, haven't you? Right, here's where it comes from, my friends, from the prophet Daniel. Daniel had a dream, and in his dream, he has successive beasts that appear in the dream. The lion, the bear, the leopard, the fourth beast, and then the son of man. 
the interpretation is that there will be consecutive kings of these kingdoms. And of course, the fifth kingdom will be the Son of Man, and it will be the kingdom of God. Once again, you have the five kingdoms, the five empires, Babylonian, Persian, Greek, Roman, and then the kingdom of God, the church. Uh, the long-awaited kingdom of God and the heavenly Son of Man will come during the Roman Empire. Now, the Jewish people knew this stuff. They were waiting. <coughs> well, when? The Roman Empire lasted for almost a thousand years. When is this going to happen? Daniel tells us right to the year when this is going to happen. Look at the next one. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Daniel says, From the going forth of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, there will be 70 weeks of years. And then the Messiah will be cut off, and the city and sanctuary will be destroyed. Well, what actually happened? The decree to rebuild the temple by King uh, Antaxerxes of the Persians. Uh, after the Babylonians were conquered, the Persians took over, and there was a king named Cyrus, and he had a dream from God, and because of that dream, he said to the Jewish people, you can go home. They had been in Babylon as slaves for 70 years, and he says, you can go home, I want you to rebuild your temple in Jerusalem, uh, rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the city, and he actually gave them money and some resources to do so. So... The prophet Daniel, who was in exile at that time with them, he said, from this day, from the, going, from the day the king said, go back home and rebuild the temple, there will be 70 weeks of years. How many years is that? 490. Seven days in a week. 70 weeks. Seven times 70. So D Daniel is saying, in 490 years, the Messiah will come, and then he will be killed. He will be cut off. So Daniel had even told them exactly when Jesus was going to show up on the earth. He didn't say the name Jesus, yeah, but he's the Son of Man who is the King of the Fifth Kingdom. Okay? So, when John the Baptist starts his preaching... And he says, the kingdom of God is coming soon. It's like everybody said, yeah, brother, I know it. The 490 years are up. We are waiting. Everybody was so excited. When will the Messiah appear? Because we've been waiting for 490 years. Because Daniel said he's coming at this time. We're in the fourth kingdom. It's been 490 years. Everything is lined up. And John says, he's in your midst. He will soon appear. He will soon make himself known. You better be ready. You better be ready for him. You better change your ways, sinner. Come into the river and be baptized. Show God that you want him. And so, John was extremely popular. And everybody was waiting for this. The excitement was intense. They'd been waiting for centuries for this to happen. So, if you were a Jew at that time, you would be very jazzed by all this. Of course, the historical events 
uh, I've got them there. And then the dates, uh, and then the, the, the city and the sanctuary were destroyed. Uh, Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed in 70 AD. This was all prophesied by Daniel 500 years before. Okay, so now we go back to where we were. This child, John, would live a holy life. He said he would live in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Oh, again, there's another thing from the Old Testament. You've heard of Elijah the prophet, right? If you were to read about Elijah the prophet in the Old Testament, how did he dress? He wore a garment of camel's hair. He wore a camel skin with a leather belt tied around his waist. If you read a description of John the Baptist, what does it say? He wore a garment of camel hair with a leather belt tied around his waist. It's the exact same description. The angel Gabriel says, He will come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. When John was on this earth, people came up to him and said, Are you Elijah? Why would they think he was Elijah? Did anybody know anything about Elijah and how he ended his life? At the end of Elijah's life, a fiery chariot came down out of the sky. He got on, and these, this chariot of fire, these horses of fire, went up into the sky. So Elijah did not die a natural death like other people. And some people thought, well, since he went up into heaven like that, someday he may come down. And people thought, are you Elijah? Come back to the earth. And John said, no, I am not Elijah. <laughs> okay, we don't have any reincarnation in this religion, baby. But, you know, people were so jazzed. They were so primed. They were ready to explode, you know? And so, he's going to prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah. Well, that's a good place to stop. And uh, we'll start there. Let's, let's pray. This is Pentecost. Let's pray. Let's pray for the Holy Spirit. Stand up. And... Um,